I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Will America ever do anything about gun violence? If Sandy Hook didn't do it, will anything ever? You probably remember December 14, 2012 in Newtown, Connecticut, when 20-year-old Adam Lanza shot and killed 26 people, including 20 children between the ages of six and seven years old and six adult staff members. On the night of October 1st, 2017, on the Las Vegas Strip in Nevada, a gunman on an upper floor of a hotel opened fire and killed 58 people and wounded 413. On August 3rd, 2019, a mass shooting occurred at a Walmart store in El Paso, Texas, when a gunman shot and killed 23 people and injured another 23. June 12th, 2016, 29-year-old security guard killed 49 people and wounded 53 others in the mass shooting inside Pulse, a gay nightclub in Orlando. The tragic list just goes on and on and on. Is there a will to do something? And just as important, is there a way? Could it be that this bloodletting of innocence is the price we must accept and be prepared to pay for our sacred Second Amendment rights? Or is the common understanding that each individual has rights under the Second Amendment, which are inviolable, uh, just plain wrong? Today on Keeping Democracy Alive, our subject is this seemingly endless discussion and rigid disagreement as featured in our guest's new film titled, You Don't Understand the Second Amendment. In addition to filmmaking, Jonathan Hennessy is the author of several books addressing American history, including The U.S. Constitution, a graphic adaptation, Alexander Hamilton, a graphic history of an American founding father, and The Gettysburg Address, a graphic adaptation, as well as the New York Times bestselling The Comic Book Story of Beer. Yes, beer, a favorite beverage of the founding fathers. There was a lot of drinking going on back then. Uh, and as with many fierce disagreements, Hennessy argues that both sides are misunderstanding the intentions of our founders. Well, thanks for being with us, Jonathan Hennessy. Bert, it's a, it's a great pleasure and honor to be here. Thank you very much, and thank you for that extremely thorough introduction. Ah, well, I try. Well, am I correct that on one end of the scale of understanding the Second Amendment is the position that the wording specifically and quite intentionally champions unfettered access to and use of whatever firearms one chooses? This argument of course, sees any and all restrictions as a slippery slope, ending ultimately in universal confiscation of all privately owned firearms. On the other end of the scale is the argument that a founding document ties gun ownership to participation in a militia, and thereby argue it is lawful for government to limit firearms any way it sees fit. 
the, that the structure of the Second Amendment wording specifically modifies the well-regulated militia aspect. Here is the wording of the Second Amendment. As you know, Jonathan, it's not very long at all, but boy, it does get confused. It says, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. That's it. That's the whole thing. So much energy has been spent on this issue. I wonder if it's possible to ever be resolved. Of course, first, it must be understood. That's where your film uh, comes in. How did this film come about, and why did you decide to do it on this format rather than a book? Well, that's, that's correct. Um, so you mentioned earlier that uh, the first book that I had the good luck of publishing was an adaptation of the whole U.S. Constitution, and it's actually in the format of a graphic novel or, or a comic book. Right. So it was sort of an enterprise. In you know, the Constitution is a sh- is a short document, but it's it does not make for easy reading. And when you you know ca- when you have your like ACLU pocket edition of the Constitution, it's also not annotated. So the the, the project of turning it into a, a graphic novel was was an attempt to make the Constitution like to make a version of it that was more accessible, uh, more democratic, more easy to read, more fun to read than, than any that had ever had been rendered before, possibly short of Schoolhouse Rock. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I had a few pages to spend on the Second Amendment. And even, even there, I, I, I knew, you know, what, I knew back when the project first came over the transom and it was something that was going to happen, that, that this was going to be a, a, a thorny, topic to handle in in a few pages and uh, I do feel like I got to say something about it but there was a lot of lingering curiosity for me and a lot of things that I felt were left unsaid not only about the second amendment but about the bill of rights in particular that was just that format didn't didn't work for it so uh-huh. I had long visioned you know I have to attack this I have to come at this from some other way and, you know, also wanting to make it accessible and dynamic and, uh, and, you know, and this is a movie that is is on the internet free for anyone to stream at any time. Yeah. So that's accessible and, and, uh, and, and visual and easy to read and understand. And how long is the movie? It's what, an hour and something? It's a long, well, I'll tell you, Bert, it would have been wonderful to make something, you know, an explainer very short. Uh, this is a feature to. length, some feature length documentary because right. there's so, this is the, the topics and the issues at hand here are so poorly understood and there's so much, uh, misinformation and disinformation about that. that every time I thought about, uh, you know, another aspect of it that sort of needed to be covered because, you know, the other, the other side of the issue, Bert, has, has really flooded the zone with, free content, you know, or, or easy to access content uh, on the internet, all, all kinds of places, you know, pushing the other agenda, but nobody had done it for the actual historical truth in the historical context. So I felt like that just needed to be done. It does need to be done. People, it's such a big deal. It's such a big deal. Believe me, I've been involved with the issue as a former state senator. Now, the film goes through construction of the Second Amendment, which is unlike any other constitutional amendment. This is the Second Amendment. It's in the Bill of Rights. In what ways is it unique, and what does the tour show? Yes, well, what, I, what I'd like to start out with is, you know, in any, I think we've all been conditioned, Bert, like, um, to, I think that the, the, the side of the gun lobby and the way that the Second Amendment is usually understood in the media, 
that side has been so successful in pushing you know, their agenda and their vision, their absurd and ahistorical vision of, w- of what the Second Amendment means, is that even, even people, even progressives, centrists, we've all sort of bought what the NRA wants us to believe about the Second Amendment. And, and people who listen to, a, you know, people who will, will tune in to a show like yours and listen to a, what a person like you has to say, I think we all experience kind of the conditioning like, I don't need. I under, already understand this. There's nothing to help my position in uh-huh. here. I don't. I, it's not. I have an. It looks like you have an aversion to it. And so the main message is here is that the Second Amendment actually helps the position of common sense gun laws. It and, and progressives, centrists, and so on should not be afraid of examining it more closely. Oh, that's that's good to know. I mean, it's been you're right. There's not a lot of words in the Second Amendment, but it boy it gets confusing to a lot of people. And originally, uh, only three of the thirteen states wanted an amendment to the Constitution articulating a right to bear arms. There were only three legal cases before the Supreme Court in the first two hundred years of this country. Uh, what what's happened in recent decades that made this issue such a flashpoint? Yeah, Bert, that's, it's, it's, you know, you hit on some great points there. Um, one of the number one, you know, it's, it's really unfortunate that this might be a human thing, it might be a thing just in our civilization alone, but it, it, it is the unfortunate fact that uh, cultural myths can be just as powerful as facts. Or possibly even even, even more powerful. Right. And one of the great myths, which you just touched on, is that you, that you know we think of all the founding fathers, and we think of what their intentions were, what they wanted, and you know the the uh, gun lobby has allowed the narrative to expand that all the founding fathers, and you know to hear them tell it, virtually all the people of the revolutionary generation were united in wanting something like the Second Amendment, that gun rights, these, these gun rights that are iterated here, were really so important to them. And what you said, which is you know, what, what part of the film spends some time on, is that of the original 13 states, when it came time to ratify the Constitution and, and propose changes to it, there were only three of those states even asked for uh, something like the Second Amendment, something spe- specifically a protection of the right of the people to keep and bear bear arms. That's not a large proportion. Interesting. So there was no clamoring. I got to have my my you know my rights to own a gun, or, or I guess in those three states. There, it, even to say that there was a clamoring in those states is a huge overstatement ah. because if if you look at all of the proposals. Now, what are, which states we're talking about? We're talking about uh, North Carolina, New York, believe it or not, huh. and Virginia. And, and they had a long list of, of changes they wanted to see to the Constitution, of which the right of the people to keep in their firearms was only one, was only one of a long list. And, you know, it's, it's also worth putting in context that, you know, in the whole of America, when the, when the Second Amendment was written, when the Constitution, the Revolutionary War, and so on, you're talking about a population over the whole over the whole continent of of you know of the, the continent that covered yeah. America anyway was about the population of Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania today. Really? So you well, you're really talking about a minority of a minority of a minority. You know, and to say that they're clamoring wow. for this is really not not correct. Oh, and and when you start to look at like how you know 
how did this actually, who was actually behind this? How, uh-huh. did, how and why did it actually come about? That tells another, you know, it needs to be told, but it's, a, it's, it's, an, it's an intricate and, and involved story that, that, that speaks to, was a not, it was not very many people. There was n- really no big push for the Bill of Rights to happen at all. Uh. Uh, what we call the Bill of Rights, which very importantly they did not call the Bill of Rights then, um, when when the federal government was uh, first set up in 1789. So, so who, what were the uh, interests that pushed the what is now the Second Amendment? Okay, so another another great question. So we know James Madison, uh, you know, one of the most important founding fathers. Sure author of many of the Federalist Papers. For a long time, he was, you know, the man behind George Washington. Very important, you know, player in, in early American politics. He becomes our, our fourth president and so on. So, so, so James Madison's uh, CV as a, a founding father is, is really second to none. And we think of him as the father of the Constitution, because the the project to make a constitution and to make a federal government happen because there really was no federal government um prior to the adoption to the ratification of the constitution this really was james madison's work <clears throat> and so it's it's crazy to posit him as an anti-government figure because he was virtually the architect and and uh, a big player behind the scenes in making a government happen in the first place now uh it, it, you know when when the, the constitution was actually ratified and a federal a federal government was set up james madison who had been the man behind washington he found himself actually sort of squeezed out of having any powerful positions in the new government uh, washington didn't didn't appoint him to any important cabinet positions and there were people in virginia there was the governor of virginia at the time patrick henry Give me liberty or give me death. We right. actually detested Madison, and was really Patrick Henry was not in favor of the Constitution. Was really angry that James Madison had made it happen. And so at the time, remember, pe- people like you and me, Bert, did not vote for senators. The senators no. were chosen by members of the. Well, it, I, 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 had to, I had to step back because they would have been chosen by a, a state senator like you were. Wow. But uh, a, a, a nobody like me wouldn't have had a say in, in senators. Well, so that only changed that. in the twentieth century. That's correct. That's correct. Uh, it was the uh, late nineteenth century, I believe. Oh, okay. But it's, it's, it's just fairly new. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so Madison uh, was one so, of the guys. So Madison had to. Uh, Madison was placed in a very delicate position when the federal government was set up. No cabinet appointment for him. Couldn't run for Senate. You know, this this was a guy who expected to play a big part in in this government that he'd done so much to set up. You know, it's like. Uh, so he had to wind up running for a seat in the House of Representatives, you know, one of the the lowest position in the in the federal government in electoral politics, where you know every two years you have to run for election again. Sure. Yeah. So Madison happened to live. Patrick Henry had gerrymandered Virginia in such a way to that Madison wouldn't even probably be able to win a seat in the House of Representatives. And Madison happened to live in a county in Virginia where there were a lot of Baptists, and the Baptists weren't happy with the Constitution because when it, you know, when it was first ratified, it did not have a First Amendment. 
didn't have the protection of the free exercise of religion. Uh-huh. They, they really wanted that. So Madison could only win a seat in the House of Representatives by becoming a, like, pro, uh, a pro let's amend the Constitution candidate. And, but here, but this, is the, this is the extremely delicate position he was in. He had, in order to become part of the government, he had to pretend to want to amend the Constitution. But he had very much made the Constitution what it is. He, didn't, he wanted to give the appearance of changing it with as little as substance as possible. So when he chose the things that became the first Ten Amendments, they were things that were chosen on purpose that, that he thought would not have a very big effect on things that were sort of common sense and already part of the social, political, and cultural landscape of America, and that really would do nothing structurally to, to change the Constitution. Interesting. And, and it seems like he, you know, there was a lot of political gamesmanship going on. What a surprise in American politics, political <laughs> gamesmanship. And, uh, you know, I do find it amusing, you know, parenthetically, that people say the intent of the founders. Well, there were so many founders, and their intents varied quite a bit, as I understand it. I'm, I'm, yes, they were at each other's throats <laughs> a lot of the time on, on very important issues. Yes, and, and to be honest, Bert, when so when Madison did, you know, this was a ploy that worked for him. He barely managed to squeak out a victory, but he did. Mm. And so when he went to the national capital to sit in Congress, he was like, "Okay, well, I'm only here because I proposed amending the Constitution. I have to go through with it." And in that, in the first Congress, there was no appetite for for doing this at all. As soon as the as soon as the Congress sat, um, it took a few weeks for them to get a quorum. Madison eventually proposed, "Hey, let's look at some amendments." Nobody else wanted to do it, and as a matter of fact, they delayed it three or four times, you know, before actually getting around to it. And when they when they it was a long process, and when they did finally get around to it, it was just another you know, another day of, of, of congressional of congressional business. Nobody called those first ten amendments the Bill of Rights. Not George Washington, not Thomas Jefferson, not Madison himself. Um, it's you know, it's 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 incredible the kind of uh, switch bait and switch gag that history that people who have taught history have have played, uh, you know, telling us that there was really this huge appetite for Bill of Rights and uh in, in the early early days of the Republic, because it's, you know, the history, the evidence just does not bear that out. And the evidence is there for anybody to see, but the evidence is, you know, tends to be locked away in archives yeah. or in like, you know, 30 or $40 hardcovers or legal journals that, you know, people, yeah. it's hard for most people to find and read. And that's the purpose of making a free documentary that actually investigates and, and shows all this evidence. Oh, fascinating. For those who may have just tuned in, our guest today is uh, Jonathan Hennessy, who has a new film, a freely available film, called You Don't Understand the Second Amendment. And I think it's uh, true. Basically, I don't know if anybody really understands the Second Amendment. And, you know, the gun use argument with regard to the language in the Second Amendment uh, is like it focuses on one of the two, either individual or militia. And you argue it's not an either-or question. So what, what is it then? Do tell me. Yeah, How do we get another, it wrong so much? It's another great, great question, Bert. Um, some people who... So, you know, my documentary really seeks to be... to, to, to just 
push forth a, a mountain of you know pro- historical primary source evidence. Every every claim in this is made up by a doc a document you know that's that's also in a document that was created at the time that that the, the Second Amendment was being ratified. You know, early Republic militia laws and so forth. So this is really about evidence. It's not a work. It's not a work of opinion. Uh-huh. And good, good. and that being and that being the case. Um, there are people who want to hear, like, oh, hey, uh, this film will tell us that the Second Amendment doesn't exist and there really is no uh, right, right to firearms. I, you will be disappointed if, if, if you think that um, if it just offers anything but, the, but a sort of, you know, the, it's a centrist reading. It's, it's huh. like, like the, a film makes a big point that the Second Amendment was not a controversial thing for 200 years of American history, and it only became controversial recently, and that's, you know, a whole other conversation, and I'm, I'm sure we'll get into that. But, the, 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 again, we're returning to the idea that Madison wanted to amend the Constitution in a way that looked substantial, but, but wasn't. Uh-huh. And, and the fact of the matter is, when it comes to, like, individuals using a certain class of firearms, really just pistols, rifles, shotguns, really non-military grade weapons when it when it comes to people who sort of qualify as US citizens like at the time it would have been white male property owners the right. idea that these people would have had pistol a pistol a, a rifle a fowler a, a weapon like that uh is uncontroversial because virtually all the founding fathers did have these firearms and we can prove it because they left inventories of their estates and it, not just the founding fathers but this whole generation of voters, there's this, there's probate records, there's estate inventories, and and this has been looked at. There was a fair amount of these kinds of weapons around in the in the early republic in the colonial era, and so you know the 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 idea that um, the protection of life and property was very important to these people. It's it's very important to you know the whole what's often called the Enlightenment era, uh-huh. the Enlightenment experiment, and how did you defend? life and property, especially in a day before when there was virtually no professional police forces. It was with firearms. It was just a, a technology. So, but the, but the important distinction is, and the, and the major part of the film is this, is whether we're talking about military-grade weapons uh-huh. or not. So, yeah. So, yeah. Well, it was a different... Uh, go ahead. Keep going there, because I guess we got to explore that. Absolutely. So... People people needed these weapons not only to protect their lives and their property, but also to be able to render effective militia service. So, so the Second Amendment is both about an individual right to have some sort of firearms, but it's not an it's not an unlimited right even in that. But there but there is a right of citizens to have firearms so they can a protect their lives, b protect their property, and c serve in the militia effectively because you, you there wasn't this you know there wasn't a standing army there weren't professional police forces the militia was there to put down insurrections to repel invasions to you know act in in times of emergency and you could not have an effective militia service if you didn't have individuals who knew basic the basics of like how to use a gun and the basics of how to behave in the context of of a militia so the Second Amendment is really about both things because you can't have a, a you can't have a citizens of militia with with if those citizens don't know some 
fundamentals of the use of a rifle. So then, it, if I'm hearing this right, that maybe the the NRA is correct in saying, well, it's not just about militia, as some people argue, and and it's also about individual rights. It's both. So that that basically, if I'm hearing it right, says, boy, you really can't mess with people's rights to own a gun. But it's a question of what can they be regulated? It, did did I get that right? Yeah, you're, we're we're getting we're definitely getting close to it, um, but there's some very 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 important distinctions that that we need to talk about. Please um, do yes. And and the, the the NRA, you know, if you go to their headquarters in in Virginia, you walk into the atrium and there's a giant banner that says the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. It does not say right. uh, the security of a free state, the well-regulated militia. Uh-huh. They they conveniently leave that out. Mm-hmm. They don't they don't want to talk about that. One of the reasons they don't want to talk about that bird is because because this idea of what the militia is and what the militia's purpose is has also been, you know, totally totally perverted um, from its from its original intention. Nowadays, no one ever talks about the militia. Not no one, of course. I'm speaking generalities, but the the common the the the, the, the common way that people talk about the militia is we need to be, every American citizen, the whole of the people. If the government becomes tyrannical, we need to have weapons to rise up and start fighting the you know, start fighting the federal government. So we need to be armed the way that a military would be to take on an, an unfriendly military that's under the command of, of the federal government. And now, to, to a certain extent, that, that is true. But here's, what, here's why the NRA doesn't like to talk about the militia. And another important, uh, absolutely critical part of the history of the militia that gets left out of the narrative today. The militia isn't just, you know, you, me, our neighbors, people that we know, the militia is a chain of command oh. um, that, you know, we live under our, our federal constitution, but there's every state, and I'm talking to a gentleman in New Hampshire, so that's definitely one of the original 13, 13 states, original 13 colonies. Oh, yeah. Every one of these states has its own constitution, and I believe New Hampshire's was actually the first, I believe New Hampshire was actually the very first colony to write its own constitution. So these state constitutions are older than the national constitution. And every single state constitution in the 1770s, all the way up to, to, to now, says that the elected governor of the state is the commander-in-chief of the militia. So if you are in the militia, you are part of a chain of command with the elected governor at the top and all kinds of appointed military officers who have control over what you do between you and the governor. That's so the so so being part of the militia is like it's like the difference between being part of a sworn jury in a courthouse or being part of a lynch mob. <laughs> if you if you just pick up guns and decide to go enforce the law by yourself, you're you're part of a lynch mob. If you just pick up guns and decide to fight the government, you're an insurrection. You're you're not part of the militia. So yes, it is true that there was some concern um, in some quarters in the early republic that there might come a time that the federal government becomes too powerful, and who is there to who who is supposed to take up arms against it if, if that happens? It's the states. 
the, the state militias. And this is actually, Alexander Hamilton says this very clearly in The Federalist number 26, and James Madison also says it very clearly in, in The Federalist 2. Um, the, the, the gun lobby and its supporters love to talk about when James Madison in The Federalist 46 talks about the advantage of Americans being armed. But in that same quote, they do the same thing the NRA does. They cut that quote in half. And the other half of the quote is, the advantage of Americans being armed is that they're attached to subordinate governments. The subordinate governments are the states. And those, Madison says, form a barrier against the enterprises of ambition. So being part of the militia means being part of a chain of command. The civilian head, the elected governor, and all kinds of people telling you you know, how you should and should not carry out your duties and orders as part of the militia. So it really, these people that we see carrying, uh, uh, you know, AR-15s because they don't want to wear a mask, uh, that's that's not a legitimate militia? <laughs> <laughs> Believe it or not, Bert, uh, they, they are uh, essentially gun clubs. And if they, you know, took up, if they were taking violent actions, I mean, to be fair to some of these people, mm -hmm. they are acting within the law, within laws made by the legislatures of their own states. I true. mean, it, yeah. it's true that in, right. in Michigan, yeah. But the, the reason that those laws were made in the first place, I would argue, have to do with the perversion of, of history um, mm -hmm. made, you know, made possible by the gun lobby and how much it supports these sort of people who, who get elected today. But... They're no, they're they're not acting as part of the militia, and the governors of all these states, including Gretchen Whitmer, including the, yes. the governor of all these states, they they I don't know why this idea won't break through because again, it is clear in black and white in every state constitution and always has been that they are the commander in chief of the militia and the state governor. If you're the commander in chief, you have the power to to, to muster the militia to call it into service, and you also have the the power to tell the militia to disband, to to go so, home to their, go back to their homes, and until you are needed again. Interesting. I wonder why that doesn't come up very often. You would think, you know, if the word, the key word in the Second Amendment, one of the key words, militia, is that specific that it relates, you know, to a, a militia is under the control of the governor of that state. I'm surprised that hasn't come up in all these years of debate, which are not all that long compared to the history of the United States. But that's, uh, that's pretty interesting, that, that militia really is definable. And, but, but what about, I mean, private citizens of the founding era, they, they hunted, they wanted to, and there, there weren't a lot of people in the country, as you mentioned. Uh, yeah. they, want, they had a right to protect life and property. But the, the, the private citizens of the founding era didn't have uh, a certain class, they didn't have a right to a certain class of arms like artillery or rocket launchers, things like that. Uh, yeah. But but how does, so I wonder about, you know, the, the, the NRA and the gun lobby says, well, if you, if you ban, you know, fully automatic machine guns, which are banned, I believe, then, you know, that's a slippery slope. What about that argument? Yeah, it's another historically absurd argument. Um, a great portion of my documentary, You Don't Understand the Second Amendment, is devoted to, you know, an imp empirical argument of, of the very thing you're bringing up, Bert, is about, you know, these sorts of class of weapons. So 
you know, let's briefly go back to the, the, the Revolutionary War and even the way war was fought for, you know, decades before and decades, many decades after the Revolution. There, in, you know, people tend to think that uh, the, the American Revolution was fought exclusively by militiamen, which is not true. The, 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 the documentary is full of quotes showing how Washington and other generals were just absolutely bedeviled by yes. how unreliable the militia was. Yes. Um, and there, you know, the, the, the American Revolution was only won because we did actually form a standing, a standing professionalized army, the Continental Army, uh, because militia members just would not stick around. Often, you know, there, there were times that the militia served, you know, in, with great distinction, like at, at Saratoga, at the Battle of Bunker Hill, you know, in, in a few other places. But, but by and large, the, the militia was a disaster, yeah. and, it, and it was for years afterwards, which is why, which is one of the main reason, like, why it's out of practice today, and maybe, and maybe why the governors aren't asserting themselves the way that they, the way that they could be. So, but the way that warfare was fought was not <laughs> with muskets. You could not, yes, shotguns and handguns, rifles were an important part of, you know, fighting a, a military confrontation at that time. But you could not be an effective fighting force without artillery. So artillery means, you know, cannon, mortars, howitzers. These were absolutely crucial weapons. You know, they were, they were so crucial that, you know, when the British had occupied Boston in 1776, um, General Henry Knox it made that famous, took that famous mission to Fort Ticonderoga, captured a bunch of cannon oh, because yeah. the Americans barely had any cannon, you know, towed them 200 miles over snow-filled mountains oh with God. no roads, you know, brought them, brought them to Charlestown, and as soon as the British saw those cannon, I mean, they barely had to fire a shot. The British evacuated Boston. <laughs> That's so that's how important. That's just one measure of how important artillery artillery was. So, so if you wanted to fight the federal government, if you wanted to fight an insurrection, if you wanted to fight an invasion, you had to have artillery. But those same records that I was speaking to you about earlier—the probate records, the the in the state inventory, in the state inventories—they prove that founding fathers, as individuals, this whole not just the, not just Washington, Madison, Hamilton, but this whole revolution, this whole revolutionary generation. We know that they did not have artillery pieces right. in their homes, in their towns. They had artillery. They, the, the artillery that they had was under lock and key in state arsenals. It was bought. bought it was usually bought by state legislatures, and it was only used by the militia. And it was in the and militia again only existed because the state governments gave the blessing to have a militia. The militias were, you know, were were created and governed under the color of the, of the state authorities. Well, that seems pretty clear cut that, you know, the, the artillery, you know, the heavy, heavy arms. No, you don't necessarily have a right to do that. There can be uh, some restrictions. Those, those artillery were owned by uh, the state, not the private people. Is that correct? That is, that is, that is totally That's correct. It's a big deal. <laughs> it's a big deal. And here's the, here's the thing. So if you imagine, if you take the example of, you opened the segment, you know, talking about Las Vegas, talking about Sandy Hook, mm. um, talking about El, Pas uh, El Paso, if my memory serves. Yes, yes. And so, you know, it, some of the weapons used in, the, you know, these, ho these horrific mass shootings were 
not fully automatic weapons. They right. were these street legal, semi-automatic um, weapons like like the Bushmaster. And okay, so important thing. So we know founding fathers that revolution that generation. They did not individually keep in their artillery. Let's think about what artillery really was. So cannon, uh, mortar, howitzers, these were extremely heavy weapons, extremely expensive weapons. And, to, you know, so to be able to operate a cannon, Bert, you needed, a, you needed five people to shoot the cannon. You needed a, a, an artillery officer, a ventsman, a spongeman, a firer, and uh, by the name of the other crew member escapes me. You needed five people to shoot a cannon. Uh-huh. You also needed a, a team of horses and a driver to move that cannon into the theater of, of combat. Sure. Okay. You could only shoot the cannon a few times because then it would overheat. Right. And if it overheated, it would explode and, and kill the whole crew. So, so in, um, during the, there was a, there was a, there was a recently, uh, more contemporary, um, British artillery officer who, who undertook a, a really meticulous and vast, um, research project of how effective were the artillery of the Napoleonic age of the Revolutionary War age, and what 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 his what he figured out looking at the records of the the, the Battle of Waterloo, um, records of uh, of English colonial battles in India, and a lot of tests that that people had conducted of of artillery and ordnance at the time, is that uh, okay? So if you've shot a cannon. With grape shot, those you know, those little pellets that were made right. for killing as many many infantry as possible. Right. That that one gun, that one shot from a gun, if used effectively, would cause twenty five casualties. So imagine, just take all those people, the 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 five person crew required to shoot a cannon. You give them all, uh, you give them all these semi automatic weapons like the Bushmaster. The Bushmaster is one one hundredth of the weight of a cannon. Mm. You don't need a you don't need horses and and a and a, and a giant uh, wagon of ammunition and tools right. and gunpowder to tow it around. It doesn't explode. It doesn't get hot. It doesn't create a giant burst of gun gunpowder smoke. So when you really look at it all together, these semi-automatic weapons, like the ones used at Las Vegas, like the ones used at Hawk, that hit Sandy Hook, mm. are actually more deadly than the artillery. Known to the, revol- the known to revolutionary America, and so there is no way that even these semi-automatic weapons fall under the purview of what an individual would use in the militia or what an individual would use to protect life and property. They're just a whole different class of weapons. To say nothing of rocket launchers and automatic weapons. Yeah, really. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're speaking with Jonathan Hennessy about his new freely available film called You Don't Understand the Second Amendment. It's amazing to me, Jonathan, how little understanding there has been. I mean, in all these different state legislatures and in the uh, the federal, uh, these points that you bring up, I don't remember hearing them. I mean, my memory isn't the best, but I just it, it's interesting how they don't get that. And one standard argument from the no restrictions whatsoever side contends that an armed citizenry was intended to be a hedge against government tyranny. We have the 10th Amendment. You argue, however, that the founders did not conceive of a militia in that way at all. So who who then did they believe would re, uh, 
respond to remove, for instance, an autocratic leader? What mechanism, if not for violent means, could successfully be employed to oust a tyrant? Well, exactly, and and we all we to answer this question, we need only rely on the federal on the Federalist Papers and the words of Alexander Hamilton and James Madison. If the you know this was a concern again to a small number of people who who you know saw the possibility that someday the federal government might be out of con- so out of control that it would require a a military response yeah. you know much the same way as much the same relationship between the american colonies and and the mother country mm-hmm. and and you know if if that came about if if those exigencies had to be acted upon it is the it is the militia but it is the militia people you know people like you and i but acting under the authority of the state governments you know, as Madison said, is that the the Americans have this advantage of being armed, but uh, they, they the reason that it's an advantage is that they are they, they are attached to subordinate governments, the state, uh-huh, uh-huh. who appoint militia officers and who have a who have a uh, have a commander in chief who is the elected who is the uh, the, the elected governor, and as a matter of fact, uh, some of these you know in Lansing, Michigan, and so on. Uh, and the other state capitals, Columbia, Columbus, Ohio, and so on. Some of the protesters have been talking about, you know, the Whiskey Rebellion. Uh-huh. And and in, during the Whiskey Rebellion, you know, George Washington himself called those people insurrectionists. George Washington himself called up the militias of Pennsylvania, New Jersey, uh, New Jersey, New York, and uh, and Maryland, and personally in the field led those militia trips with their governors. To to put down the whiskey rebellion, and you know one of, one of those governors who who called up the, his state militia and and moved against the whiskey rebels in Western Pennsylvania was was the the governor of Virginia uh, Henry Lighthorse Lee, who was the father of Robert E. Lee. Oh my, yes, interesting. So you can see how far how far we've come. So yes, so it is the state militias. In the, this crazy fallback position, where armed resistance needs to be made to the federal government, the only the only group authorized to do that is the state militias, acting under the color of authority of of their of their state governors. And this is exactly, Bert, how the American Revolution played out. I mean, people did not just pick up arms one day and decide to go fight the British. They formed, they formed committees, they formed militias, you know, they, they sought permission from the state governments to uh. form militias. They sent, they voted, they sent people to the Continental Congress, and it was the representatives of the people sitting in Congress who declared the, their independence. It wasn't just the people acting on that, right. acting at their own initiative. It was the states, through Congress and through legal means, and legal documents, because the, 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 the Declaration of Independence is a legal document. Sure as heck is. Made by the Continental Congress and signed by representatives of the states. Yeah, but you're talking real history. Myth is so much more fun. And it's <laughs> much is so much easier. better. Yeah, it's so much easier to understand myth. And in talking about myth, I... From knowing, you know, a lot of the uh, uh, gun owners in New Hampshire, NRA people, I think they they equate guns with freedom. If I don't have my gun, then you're taking away my freedom. They, you know, the, the the right to assemble, the right of religion, the right of free speech, right of a free press. 
it all seems to be embodied in this chunk of metal. And I, I, I do find that interesting, but it can, it, one doesn't necessarily, if, let me ask this as a question, so that if there are, uh, you know, gun safety laws, that doesn't necessarily uh, start a uh, slippery slope taking away our freedoms. No, because the, the point is there really, there were, there were laws at the time, you know, virtually everywhere about what guns people could use on an individual basis. And there were laws covering how they, how they could be used. Um, another segment of, of, the, of you don't understand the Second Amendment looks at, okay, so the Second Amendment comes about ratified 1791, becomes part of the Constitution. And then the states go ahead, okay, so now that this, now that we have this amendment to the Constitution, and the federal government really, it's a big priority to have an effective militia, because, it, because you know, the Revolutionary War is over, America's in a pretty dire financial strait, and there's just, there's not enough of a tax basis to have a standing army. And there's ideological problems with a standing army, too. So, so it's very important to George Washington. It's very important to most of the generals who had just won the war for independence that there be some kind of effective militia. And one of the things that they wanted to make sure was that the militias would all be using the same sort of weapons, the same sort of caliber of ammunition, so you could actually scale up these kinds of you know these kinds of operations. Because if everybody's using a different kind of gun, different kind of boots, different kind of ammunition, you can't like really. It's much harder to supply these people. And keep them ready for combat. If if there's no if there's if there's no like universalization of how the militias behave and what the militias use. So you know all the states go and write new militia laws, new militia laws that come right after the Second Amendment is ratified. And and in Georgia, so I so it, you know I could examine you could examine the, the state militia laws of any of those states. But I but rather than pick some place like New Hampshire or New York. You know that the the the, the, the sort of pro gun movement would initially would you know immediately dismiss. Well, this is a big government state. You know, uh -huh. I wouldn't be surprised to see their gun laws. I looked very closely at the, the militia laws of 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 places in the South, like especially Georgia. Uh -huh. and, and, and you know, not only do you continue to find that the governor is commander in chief, but that there's all kinds of people who are exempted from having Second Amendment rights because they're not allowed to be in the militia. And I'm, I'm not just talking about people like slaves or women or indentured servants. I'm talking about people who are too young, people who are too old, um, and, and, and just people who serve other purposes in, you know, in their society. So students and ministers and millers and printers and county surveyors, the list goes on and on of all these professions who were not part of the militia. Uh-huh. Yeah, they, and so the militia could decide who could be excluded, and so therefore, they they didn't have those people who were excluded couldn't have easy access to the same guns. Is that right? Exactly. So one one of the biggest and you know most staring us in the face truth yeah. about the Second Amendment and about the Constitution in general is is is, is this, and and you're and you're you, you hit on it right there. So the the Second Amendment says. The right of the people uh -huh. to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Okay, so now we have this question: Who who is the people? Does the people does the people really mean every you know living and breathing man, woman, and child? And and the point is, we know from these militia laws that that that, that, that it does not. But we know from the text and structure of the rest of the Constitution it does not either, because there are many places in the Constitution where they have to talk about provisions that apply to everyone. 
or to people who, in, in, in that case, the Constitution uses the word persons. Right. So persons means everyone. Mm-hmm. People means those of us who have what's called the political right. So that means uh-huh. the right to vote, the right to vote, the right to serve in office if you do get elected, the right to be in a jury, and the right to be in the militia. And that was a small segment of the population. So remember, it was we the people who founded the government and whose interests the government was founded to protect. It was not we the persons. So there were already all kinds of members of the population at the time who did not have voting rights, who did not have the right to be on juries or in the militia. So we're talking about free African-Americans. We're talking about women. We're talking about children. We're talking about foreigners. We're talking about, um, and literally the state, the, the 1790s militia laws of Georgia say that madmen and invalids and imbeciles won't be in the militia and don't have militia rights. So they have the common sense wow. to keep weapons away from who you know who they called madmen and and imbeciles and idiots. Um, and in 1790s Georgia, there was this huge legal basis for accepting people from from Second Amendment rights based on you know and, and prisoners wow. as well. So sure. you know based on what and and and. Uh, you know, this this continues today because you are not a member of the people in many states if you are a convicted felon. Your your voting rights are taken away. Your your right to you know after the Civil War the the uh, the right of former Confederates to to be elected to office and to vote was was taken away. So so these political rights are are not absolute, and so people. Uh-huh. Saying the right of the people to keep in their arms that does not it clearly doesn't was never meant to include everyone. It does include responsible citizens, adults who who you know who follow the laws and are willing to be part of this experiment in, in governance and are, are responsible enough to do that. And I'm, nice. and I'm sure there the great majority of gun owners in New Hampshire falls into that umbrella. Of course, everywhere. Most gun owners are responsible, I think. Absolutely. I mean, they, they really are. But uh, the, the gun lobby is something else entirely. That's, you know, for the manufacturers, I think, you know, and their profits, really. They changed, actually. I believe the NRA changed quite a bit in 1979. There was sort of a coup there where it, it became more of a, a lobby for the uh, gun manufacturers than for individual rights. But that's another story. And the cut... The Constitution, our founding, it all comes out of the Enlightenment period. Governance of, of the country's founding was envisioned as a way of moving away from a state of war to a state of society. How does that, I think that's, I'm getting the sense that that bears a lot on this argument. Yeah, that has, and that has, you know, you see the erosion of that, you know, a very simple and critical truth in the, in the protest that, that we see today. Um, the Constitution is not an anti-government document. It is a. It creates a government. Um, that that was the idea. Yeah. The, the founding fathers never believed, not one of them, that um, that man could exist. That that man could exist in 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 a way that Americans would want to exist without government. Um, right. These the the right. key philosophers of the Enlightenment, uh, Thomas Hobbes. John Locke, Pufendorf, Montesquieu, you know, their entire philosophy was 
you know, how to erect a kind of just government that, to get us away from monarchy. Yeah. And also, and to, you know, yeah, there were people who argued at the time that you that the, the choice was we either have monarchy where we have like, you know, very strong head of state with money and military might who, you know, cows you into obeying the laws or you live mm. uh, or you live sort of in a state of what they call the state of war or a state of uh-huh. nature, Maybe. which means that, you know, you are subject to the control of whoever is just stronger than you. <laughs> that, you know, your, your life, your property is not secure if someone down the street is stronger, better armed than you oh and can just come take your life and property at any time. That, that is without, without government, that is the state that, that John Locke and Montesquieu and Hobbes, they all thought men would, would live in. So the idea was to find how can we not live in a state of nature? How can we not live in a state of war? But also how can we get rid of, of monarchy? Yeah. And the, the idea was that you know, man is born with, with complete and total freedom, right. but that freedom doesn't mean anything if your life and property can't be secured somehow. And you can only secure uh-huh. your life and property with with a with a with a government. Yes, with a repu- and with a Republican government. And, and it's worth remembering that we touched on this a little bit before that for the for the many early decades of the Constitution, um, you know, what rights did it really? Did it really give you the the only right that it to to even for someone who was a white male property owner, mm-hmm. um, it gave you the right to vote for your member of the House of Representatives. It didn't give you the right to vote for a senator. Um, right. It really only protected your right to vote for your House member if your state recognize if you were among the class of people that the state recognizes have is extending the franchise to. But it also meant that you did not have the right to did not protect your right to vote for president. So if you're only if you're if you're only guaranteed right by the Constitution is is the is the right to vote for your member of the House of Representatives, how does that how could that same document be understood that it that it would give you the right to take up arms against the government if you don't like what the government is doing? It, it's it's <laughs> absurd. Yes, of course it is. So much absurdity. It just comes from misunderstanding of history. Just got to ask, a ban on assault weapons and on large capacity magazines, things like that, that, I would think that would not be inconsistent with the intentions of the Second Amendment. And as part of that, why, why should people, why do you counsel people not to make Washington, D.C. their first stop to institute such laws? One, so a key thing that, that, you know, I would ask all your listeners to take away is, is you know, one of these truths that's just staring us in the face, but that for some reason we've, we've moved away from, is that the, the elected state governors who were in 1776 and 1787 and 1789, all the way through today, always been the commander-in-chief of the state militia. Yes. If the, if the, the commander-in-chief, that, that, that delegates so much power over the militia, I don't see any reason why it doesn't empower the governor with you know stroke of his or her pen to say, in the militia of this state, these are the weapons that I would like people to have at home, and these are the kinds of weapons huh. that we will keep in state arsenals. Huh. Boy, that would be so, good. Absolutely. Now, I just want to ask, after every shooting from JFK through Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy, to more recent spates of mass shootings— after each one, there's a cry for 
our legislators to do something. And then the voices died down and nothing is done. Is it the political power of the NRA or what? Why does nothing ever happen? And can it change? Can it change? Can we do something? Go ahead. To be really honest with you, Bert, I think for a lot of people, the myths and the disinformation and the misinformation is so deeply ingrained that I don't, I don't, there's, there's people who are beyond persuasion. There's people who are beyond their, the ability to reckon with these historical facts. Yes. Um, there's so, so, but, but the documentary isn't made for those people because I, I uh, think, the, I think the, they're, they're just too far gone. Yeah. The problem is one of the reasons this, this, this can't happen. It, it is very much, you know, the response, it is very much, the, the gun lobby writ large is, is very much responsible for this. Yeah. But, um, you know, one of the, pro- one of, so they have, you know, great power as lobbyists, great power over Congress, great power over the Senate, great power over the presidency. That's one reason it, it won't happen. They have great power over the Supreme Court of the United States. Oh, yes. sure and do. so, so the problem is when there are cries to change things, the people who are crying out for common sense gun laws feel this aversion to understanding or looking at the Second Amendment themselves. Hmm. They've sort they're sort of been captured by uh-huh. the miscreation of, of the gun lobby. Uh-huh. And so so if they were to argue the points that are that are, you know, exposed by the historical evidence in this documentary, I think they could get a lot further. The problem is they're not arguing those points. And right. and I don't claim to be the first person right. to ever expose this and put it together. But again, the problem is the people who do write about these things and the people who do have this information tend to lock it up again in obscure law journals yeah. and $30 hardcovers and white papers made by think tanks that people just can't read, won't read, don't know how to find. Um, well, your you film know, the is other really... side is terrible at communicating their points, and the uh, idea of making a free documentary is, just, yeah, a, a small possibly quixotic attempt to undo that. So the film is titled You Don't Understand the Second Amendment. And if people just were to Google that, they could watch it. Is that right? Uh, they, the, probably the simplest way, it's, it's on YouTube. It's yeah. on an ad-free platform called Vimeo. Yeah, you yes. don't even have to ask. But if you go to 2atruth.com or understandthesecondamendment.com, those, those will get you there. Understandthesecondamendment.com. Well, thank you so much. Very, very uh, interesting. It's good to learn actual facts and, uh, you know, myths. They're more fun, but they're not real. Thank you so much, Jonathan Hennessy. Oh, Bert, it's a great honor. One doesn't always have the pleasure of, of, of engaging with someone, you know, as informed and cordial as you are. So thank you. Oh, thank you. I'm speaking to the Justice League of America. 